Father, as we were singing that song, I couldn't help but think of how self-absorbed we can get. We spend so much of our time thinking about ourselves, uh, thinking about how we look or how we're coming across or what other people think about us, managing our lives and uh, positioning ourselves to get to the next level. God, forgive us for our self-absorption and forgive us for a consumer approach to Christianity. Lord, it's not about us. It's about the greatness of our God. It's about all that you are. And ironically, Lord, when we focus on your greatness and on your glory, we experience a joy and a fulfillment and a happiness that goes beyond human comprehension. And Lord Jesus, today, today I pray that we will reach beyond our puny, small ceilings, Lord, and and that you'll rip them open and we'll see the sunlight of your glory. That the glory of God will mark our lives and our souls. Lord Jesus, speak to our hearts today. I pray especially as I talk about the truth about temptation and overcoming temptation that the Holy Spirit will help us, Lord, those of us who have been beaten up along the journey and perhaps have been dominated by our desires. Oh, Spirit of God, do your work today. Take us to where you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, fellowship. Good to see you. Good to see you. I am glad no one got their nose broke or the eye put out through our little slingshot action there. That was uh, interesting. And um, no, that's great. That's great. Really do pray for Roswell Day of Hope. You know, one of the things we talk about as a team, uh, we don't want to get in a habit of just doing events Now, sometimes you can make the assumption that the event is the ministry. That's not the ministry. The ministry is engaging and giving a cup of cold water in Jesus' name to the poor and under-resourced. And uh, so pray that God will use us in a wonderful way this Saturday and that there will be many ministry opportunities and people's lives will be touched and changed and, uh, you know, that heaven will be populated ultimately because uh, we uh, gave hands and feet to the love of Jesus uh, and we have more stories of people coming to, coming to know Christ. Also, if you're visiting with us today, thank you so very much for coming. We, we're just thrilled and delighted that you're here. We are very serious about maturity in Christ and moving down the road and not settling for a comfortable Christianity. Uh, and we believe that God wants us all to be multiplying disciples and to experience everything that he has in store for us. And so that's what our passion is here at Fellowship. And if you're visiting and you want to know more about our church or how you can get involved or how you can get plugged in. Uh, we have people out in the commons. Uh, I'll be up front to myself and some of our leaders after the service. Or uh, you can ask us any question you'd like to ask. If you can't get those answers, then send us an email and we'll be sure to get back to you. And uh, thank you. Thank you so much for, for coming. 
If you have a Bible, I want you to meet me in James chapter, chapter 1. James chapter 1. This is the second installment in a 14-part series. Isn't that amazing? Uh, on the book of James. Last week we started the book, and I uh, just want to underscore, as you see up here, the title of the series is Faith Works. That's not some little cute statement. Uh, we really believe that that is the essence of the book of James. That's what James is talking about, that faith indeed does work. Know that you don't work for your salvation, but he's talking about an authentic faith, a real faith that shows up in our daily struggles and challenges in life. It is a marvelous, marvelous book. It's an engaging book. And as I said last week, uh, James is, is writing to Christians, Jewish Christians, who have been scattered because of persecution and other things. They have been just scattered. Many of them are poor. Uh, they're frightened. Uh, this is one of the earlier books. Uh, James is a half-brother of Jesus and was probably written maybe about 10 years or so after Jesus was crucified. So these are fairly new believers who have walked away from uh, uh, traditional Judaism to follow the Lord Jesus. And so there's uh, all kinds of issues that they're dealing with. And as you read the letter, it's kind of like a long email or so that you will send to one of your kids in school where some things are happening. And it's just like the, a menu of issues that James is clicking off. And so the, 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 the thread that's pulled through the book, though, I really believe is over in chapter 2, is that faith without works is dead. And so he's talking about, talking about a living faith. Last week we talked about how to get through trials and hard times. Well, this week we want to talk about temptation. I want you to take a look with me in verse 12. I want to read James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. And you might say, Crawford, wait a minute, you skipped over verses 9 to 11. Well, yeah, I did for this week, and when we get to chapter 5, I'm going to come back to chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, because the subject matter, when he talks about uh, wealthy folks and power and this kind of thing, he picks it up in more detail in that chapter, and I'll come back and connect it here. James chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed, and you might want to underscore these next four words, by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I want to talk today a little bit about the truth about temptation. The truth about temptation. You perhaps have heard the old line that you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you sure enough can stop the bird from building a nest on your head. Well, the truth of the matter is that we're all tempted, every last one of us. It was the actor, uh, Mae West, that made the quip, I, I generally avoid temptation unless I can't resist it. <laughs> I mean, it's all around us, and all of us are tempted. Every last one of us are tempted. Paul made that obvious in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, when he says, there is no temptation taking you. I believe the New American Standard Version puts it this way. 
but such as is common to man. Point being that we're all tempted, every last one of us. And I need to state the obvious, temptation is not sin. It is not sin. It is not sin to be tempted. Um, The sin comes, obviously, to giving in to the temptation, but it is not sin to be tempted. I don't care what you're tempted about. It could be the most awful, terrible, debased, filthy, uh, incredible thought that races across your mind and you're tempted with it. That temptation in and of itself is not sin. It's not sin. To be drawn towards something, to have an interest in it, is not necessarily the same as committing the same as committing sin. What is temptation? What is it? I, I love uh, Warren Wearsby's definition of temptation. Now listen to this. This is good. He said, Wearsby says, a temptation is an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way. Temptation is an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way. You know, for example, for example, you, 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 there's nothing wrong. Obviously, this is great to want to do good on a test, on an exam. That's wonderful. But it's wrong to cheat. It's wrong to cheat. Sexual desire in and of itself is a good thing. In fact, the Bible says it's a gift from God. It is wonderful. But to commit adultery, that's a bad thing. So I agree with Wearsby that, that uh, temptation often, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in the wrong kind of way. Now, Crawford's definition of temptation, I, I really believe from a biblical perspective, uh, mine is shorter than Wearsby, uh, temptation is an appeal or a solicitation to do wrong or evil. It's the solicitation, it's the appeal to do something that is wrong and something that is evil. Now James, as he picks up his pen and he's writing this book, and again, there's this menu of issues that he's talking about, and he's trying to encourage these impoverished Christians who have been scattered and give them some hope. He he talks about the whole issue of temptation in verses 12 through 15. And I think the big idea that James is driving home is that it's important to know the truth about temptation so that you can avoid its snares. So he says it's important to know the truth about temptation. Now let me, let me give you the four things, four descriptive things that I think James is saying in these verses about temptation. I'll give them to you and then I'll come back and make some comments on each one of them. He says basically four things in these four verses about the nature of temptation. He says, number one, this is going to be counterintuitive. Number one, it's good. He said, what? Yeah, I'll come back to that in a second. It's good. Number two, he says it's not from God. Number three, he says it's from within And then number four, he says, there is a goal. I won't tell you the goal just yet. Okay, so he says, temptation, number one, it's good. Number two, it's not from God. Number three, it's from within. But then number four, there is a goal. 
And that one, by the way, is a sobering warning. The first thing that he says about temptation is that it, it's, it's, it's for our good. It's for our good. That's what he says in verse 12. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, when you first read, when I first read this text here uh, years ago, I, I, I thought to myself, why is he saying trials in verse 12 and in verses 13, 14, he's talking about temptation? You would think that what he says in verse 12 would have been set up somewhere close to verses 2 through 4. Well, he's talking about trials. Isn't this a little bit out of whack here? Isn't this kind of like off message? Isn't this a little bit, you know, away from the subject matter? And then when I began to dig more deeply into the text, no, I said this last week. You may remember this. The same word translated trial is a word also translated temptation. He says over here, the Greek word that he uses over here is the word perasmus. Perasmus, the same word that he uses up in um, uh, verse 2, perasmus. It means trial. But it's also the same word that's used in verses 13 and 14 that's translated to be tempted. Actually, the noun form is given in verse 12. The verb forms are given in verses 13 and 14. What, What are you saying there? I'm saying that, that, that James does this intentionally. He says that temptation is a trial. It's a trial. The fact that you're going through a hard time with the temptations that you're experiencing, and maybe you're going through a season in which they're particularly intense, he's saying that that is ultimately good for you. It's a trial. It's a trial. Uh, he's, he's allowing something that pulls on you, that that threatens to pull you away from the Lord as a trial to strengthen you. The illustration of this is Jesus. Remember Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, or or, or 11, I guess it is, uh, when, when Jesus is tempted. And by the way, let me just say this, my view, Jesus could not have sinned. He did not have the capacity. He did not have a sin nature. So his temptation was a little bit different than ours. His temptation was not technically a solicitation to evil as it was the endurance of a trial. And he modeled the endurance of a trial. And I really believe that it applies here to verse 12. So when we feel the pressure coming on us and all these temptations are hitting us, God is trying to do something in our lives. He's trying to build something in our hearts and lives. It was John Owen, the famous 17th century theologian, says it this way. He says, temptation is like a knife that may either cut the meat or cut the throat of a man. It may be his food or his poison, his exercise or his destruction. Temptation can feed you if it's handled right, or it can kill you if it's not handled right. It all depends on what you do with it, and, and that's exactly James's point here. When Jesus was tempted, he was bought by the Spirit, interesting, to a place to be tempted. I'll comment more on that later. Not that God 
is the author of temptation, as we're going to see in a moment. But he allowed him to be placed under trial. Actually, the conditions were ripe for temptation when Jesus was tempted, which is also true in our own lives. We've got to be careful under what circumstances are we most likely to be tempted. Jesus had fasted for 40 days. And so when the enemy came to him and said, turn these rocks into bread, that was a huge temptation. The other thing I think we need to notice is that four times, however, Jesus models how you defeat temptation. I'll come back to this at the end. But four times, he is the everlasting son of God. But four times, the everlasting son of God. Four times, the everlasting son of God. Four times, he said, each time it is written. He used the power of the word of God to speak to the temptation. Now, more specifically on this whole issue of it being for our good, he says basically two things, and I won't belabor this here in, in, in verse 12. He says, number one, it produces endurance in us. Look at the first part of verse 12. Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test. It really is the same outcome as he talked about up in verse 2. You remember that, don't you? Um, verse Actually, verse Verses 2, 3, and 4. Verse 4 says, let steadfastness have its full effect. It is the same idea. If you withstand the onslaught of this temptation to do evil, to, 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 to break the heart of God, when you withstand that, you get endurance. Now, as I read this, though, I thought to myself just the opposite. I said, well, what about those of us who have not done so good with our temptations. I mean, I've, I've given in to temptation. Maybe you've given in to temptation. When I've read this text, I, I began to think in some of the broader things that you, you, the endurance is seen over a lifetime. And I don't think he's talking about sinless perfection here. I think of uh, David, who committed murder and adultery. But then he repented. And God still said of him, after he committed murder and after he committed adultery, God said of him that he's the greatest king that Israel ever had. My, I think of Peter. Peter, who was tempted with his fear and insecurity and uncertainty about the future, and, and he denies Jesus, and I don't know of anything worse than that. Not only does he deny him, the text says that he cussed. I don't know the so-and-so and so-and-so. And yet when he repented, Peter, from a human perspective, God used to be the founder of the church. Oh, what are you saying here, Crawford? What I, I just want to give balance to this whole issue. That certainly some of us fail. We should not continue to fail in our temptations. We'll see this a little bit later on. But I want to give hope to all of us, all of us, that, that our failure does not necessarily have to be a permanent disqualifier. That we keep pressing on 
and we learn from them our lessons and we repent of it and we become stronger in the areas of our weaknesses and we learn how to bear up and resist the urges inside of us. The second big piece about this whole trial thing is that it guarantees a reward. It's a guarantee of reward. God is big in the faithfulness. He says here, again in verse 12, Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial, but when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. (laughs) This crown of life. That God will reward us for being faithful. And some of us, quite frankly, we, 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 there are temptations that we, will, that we will wrestle with until our last breath. There's stuff that we will struggle with and keep struggling with until our last breath. But the struggle with it does not mean to give in to it. He says there is a, there is a crown of life And by the way, I like to make a comment about the expression, to those who love him. Uh, Sometimes we look at certain words in the Bible, we think it's a throwaway line or something just sort of poetic or to round it out. No, don't look at that that way. I really think he's talking about the motivation to be faithful and how to overcome your temptation. For example, for example, there are a lot of things. Some of you wives, what motivates you to be faithful to your husband is your walk with God obviously, but also the fact that you know your husband loves you and trusts you, and you don't want to violate that. The same thing. I've been married to Karen almost 40 years, and one of the things that God uses to keep me faithful to her is that she loves me, and I love her. What he's saying is this. Look, you, you, the, the thing that will keep you faithful is not your little coping mechanisms about overcoming temptation. As good as those things may be, it's all about your love relationship with Jesus. Do you love the Lord? Do you love him? Do you love him? If you love him, you don't want to hurt him. It causes you to step back from the precipice because you love him. James picks up his pen and he wants to tell them some things about temptation. The first thing he says, it's for our good. The second thing that he says is that it's not from God. It's not from God. Look at verse 13. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Case closed. Don't ever say when you're tempted that God initiated my temptation. James says it doesn't come from God. It doesn't come at all from God. In fact, I want to make uh, three observations here. I think this text implies three things. No, it's not specifically stated here. But I want to, I want to back up a little bit and talk about just for a second how God is involved with our temptations. Number one is this, is clearly what he says here. He is holy. God is holy, which means that God is perfectly, consistently, always holy. Evil does not come from God, period. He is not the author of evil. It does not come from him at all. Everything that God does has holiness as his objective. So, 
God is holy. However, number two, God does, does not solicit. Does not solicit. God uses evil, but he doesn't solicit people to evil. Classic illustration of that is Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. Even though he, Satan comes to Job, and God did say to Job in that, in that narrative, he said, have you considered my servant Job? He knew that Job would be faithful. He knew that Job would stand the test. He didn't solicit him to evil. The devil is the one that set up certain parameters. But God said, look, I'm going to use what you intend to destroy him. So God will use our temptations. I mean, this gets back to verse 12. I mean, it's nothing different from verse 12, is it? That he allows that to happen to us and he uses that in our lives to produce holiness and endurance and, 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 and faithfulness inside of us. So he uses it. Thirdly, and I guess I just said that, um, God uses temptations, or how does he use them? I want to suggest to you that when God allows us to be confronted with evil, it is, it is for at least these three reasons. At least these three reasons. Reason number one, our purification and strength. Our purification and strength. When he permits it, God could keep a hedge on us and, and not allow it, but when he permits it, it's for our purification and strength. And then sadly, number two, sometimes for our judgment. He just steps back and we, re, removes his restraining hands. And when we consistently reject God's provision for our temptation... It is to ask God to remove his hand. When we consistently push him and consistently give in to our sins, consistently ignore, consistently play with an area of weakness and ignore God, at a certain point, God just steps back. He said, where do you get that from? Well, the principle is found in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, it says how God just kept in, uh, going after and revealing himself in nature and revealing himself and revealing himself. And people not only, you know, said they didn't want it, they rejected him completely. And there's that line that says, and God gave them up. That's to be understood this way, I believe. That God just said, okay, all right, all right okay, you want to do that? I, I'm going to step back. I'm going to give you over to doing what you want to do and realizing the full bore consequences of what you want to do. And some people live like that. Some of us in this room are engaged in sinful activity. And I want to tell you, there comes a point in time where God says the most merciful thing for me to do is to get out of your way and let you. So sometimes he will remove his hand of protection and allow us to experience the fruit of yielding to our temptations. And the third reason is this. 
the third way or in which God uses our temptations is to demonstrate his power and glory. To demonstrate his power and glory. First Corinthians chapter 12 verse, or 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 9. You remember Paul is struggling. Paul is struggling, struggling, struggling with the thorn in the flesh. And I've heard all kinds of speculation about the thorn in the flesh. As far as I'm concerned, if God didn't tell you what it is, it must not be all that important. The principle is bigger. So he didn't tell us what the thorn in the flesh is. It's something that he struggled with. It could have been some enormous temptation. I don't know what it was. And with apostolic authority, he sought the Lord three times over this thing, and God wouldn't, uh, God, for whatever reason, wouldn't take it away from him. But Paul lived the words of Jesus who spoke to him when he said in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. And again, as I said earlier, some of us will go to our graves without ever having our temptation in a certain area removed from us. But what we will experience is the power of God to meet us in those dark, lonely times of overwhelming temptation. And we'll know what it means for him to walk with us through those valleys and dark times. Okay, so what's the truth about temptation? Well, it's for our good. It's not from God. But number three, it is from within. James tells us here in verse 13, or verse 14, excuse me, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, by his own desire. Let me say a word about Satan and temptation. By the way, in this text, Satan's name is not mentioned. I, I am going to say something in verse 15 uh, his name, there's an ellipsis there, and I really believe that his name is implied. Satan is not the primary source of our temptation. Satan is the exploiter of our temptation. Now, this may trouble some of us, but temptation resides in us. There is something in us that we never get rid of that likes wrong. It's individualized. It's not the same desires, not the same temptations, not the same issues. But each one of us, every last one of you, every la up here, to, and all of us, there are certain hot points and buttons and issues and particular sins that we need to be careful of. We need to be careful of. Hmm. If you remember the old Calvin and Hobbes uh, comic strip, yeah, <laughs> this is, a, this is a, old Calvin is having this conversation with Hobbes and Calvin is waxing eloquent. He says, Hobbes, do you believe in the devil? 
You know, a supreme evil being dedicated to the temptation, corruption and destruction of man. And Hobbes muses for a little bit and he says, I'm not so sure man needs the help. (laughs) That's great theology. I I don't need a lot of help to do wrong. Y'all more holy than I am. I I don't need I don't need a lot of help. I mean, in fact, I find in me creative ways of doing wrong. And that's what James is basically, basically saying here. And by the way, the point of verses 14 and 15 is that sin is not just a single act. It is a process. It's a process. And we'll get to that in a second. Um, James says in verse, in, this, in verse 14 that we, we are vulnerable. He uses the expression lured and enticed. You know, very seldom does temptation appear as temptation. Very seldom. Very seldom does it appear that way. It always seems more promising than it really is. Always. And even if you've fallen into the same sin over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, it's like crazy insanity. Each time you kind of like talk your way out of what you know to be true about it, and it, you think that somehow or another this is going to be different when you really know that it's not. It always promises more than it delivers. And, you know, you, 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 you try it once. You might be hooked for a lifetime. And I don't know if any of you have seen those PSAs on TV about uh, the, those ads about the dangers of meth. You know, the young lady that says, I'll just do it one time. And I'll just do this one time. And you see the downward spiral and escalation of the devastation of sin. And you get so caught in it that you don't even see its impact on you. Lured and enticed. By the way, the word lured... It's a, it, it, it's, it's a word that was used of, literally back then, of baiting fish. means to attract. It's the idea of baiting with a hook. Baiting with a hook. And when you catch a fish, it ends up where it doesn't belong. You see, when we give in to something, never forget this. Never forget this. And we always forget this. When we yield to temptation, we always forget this. When we give into something, we always give up something. There is of necessity a spiritual erosion that takes place in our lives whenever we yield to sin. Whenever you give into temptation, it's not just what you did at that moment. There's something that's been taken from us. The bait always hides the consequences of sin. It always hides that hook. Whatever the bait might be, if you're fly fishing, it, it, this looks like a, oh, this looks like a fly. Oh, my goodness, that, 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 that looks like a June bug. But it looks like a piece of meat. You don't realize that there's a hook there, and you take it, and you're pulled out. You go to where you don't belong. The bait entices us in each person his own desire. I love the way he puts it. He says, not everybody's weaknesses and vulnerabilities are the same. I said that earlier, but it's really true. You know, my temptations are not necessarily your temptations. What I'm tempted with, you, you don't even have a problem with. This is no big deal. 
And some of the stuff that you're tempted with, that, that wouldn't phase me at all. It wouldn't phase me at all. I give you a personal illustration. I, I have no problem being around alcohol or that kind of thing. That doesn't bother me. But some of us don't need to go near it. Some of us can't even go down the aisle where they sell wine in the grocery store. You know, it, it all depends. And that's the reason why you got to know yourself. You got to know yourself. You got to know your weaknesses, and I'll say more about that in a moment. There is a dark curiosity inside of all of us. A dark curiosity that's in every heart and in every life. That's what he says here, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And in context, these desires, he's not talking about pure desires, he's talking about bad stuff. That there are cravings in us that are outside the boundaries of what is wholesome. There are cravings and desires in us that's outside of the boundaries of what is right. And all of us have those things. There is something in us that is attracted to what we shouldn't have and where we don't belong. How else do you explain character assassinations and and adultery and pornography and stealing and greed? How else do you explain that? How else do you explain people doing unimaginable things to people? You don't have to tell a child a lie. And even as believers, still in us, is this dark side that is easily seduced It's there. It's there. It is hard, if not impossible, to say no to ourselves. Hard to say no to ourselves. Even those of us who are pride ourselves in our self-discipline, we can be amazingly disciplined and under control in almost every area of our lives, but everybody has something. Some area. That it becomes difficult to say no. And let me tell you this, please, I'm pleading with you. I'm pleading with you. I see this so much. I see it in my own life. Please, please do not trust yourself. Do not trust yourself. Do not put confidence in yourself. There is a level of confidence in ourselves. I understand that we need to have in our competencies and getting things done. I'm not talking about that. But one of the keys, biblically, in sanctification, this is where you have to stop with some of the self-help talk here. And some of the self-esteem talk here, because my understanding, time and time and time again, the apostles say, put no confidence in your flesh. 
The focus of our confidence is in God and His Word and in His Holy Spirit. Not in yourself, but in Him. And James warns us, says, you know, wait, 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 don't, 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 please, please don't act like you've mastered certain things. Don't, don't even go down that road. We're carried away. What's the truth about temptation? Well, it's for our good. It's not from God. It's from within. And here's the point at which I think James is driving in this brief paragraph. Mm. And he says, there is a goal. And he gives a somber and, uh, solemn, somber and solemn warning in verse 14, 15. He says, then desire, when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The warning that James is giving here is simply this, and that is the goal. The goal of all temptation is separation from God. That's the goal of all temptation. The goal of all temptation is separation from God. That's why the enemy wants to exploit the weaknesses inside of us. The enemy always moves us toward isolation. God moves us toward dynamic community and fellowship. The enemy always wants to pull us toward darkness and pull us away from community, pull us away from the life of God. And that is the goal of temptation. That's what he wants to leverage us from, to to, to pull us down that pipe. And here in verse 15, there is this deadly spiral, this deadly spiral, deadly spiral. First, there is the act of sin. It says, then desire, when it has conceived. Remember I said there's an ellipsis here? A little subtle here, a little subtle here. There's an ellipsis here. Satan is present here, but his name is not mentioned here. He, he's using, and I don't want to get too much into details of this, but he's using, using family planning here as an illustration. We're drawn away by our own desires. But Satan plays a part of that. It's like the seed and the egg coming together. Then you sin. There's desire, there's opportunity, there's action, bam, there's sin. Then he escalates this. The next level down on this spiral, there is, there is the act of sin, but number two, there's the habit of sin. Notice the expression, the desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown. When it is fully grown. Keep participating in it. You keep doing it. That's when a weakness becomes a stronghold. You keep excusing yourself. 
Then you start hiding from other people. You start getting away from other Christians. You start infrequently attending church. This is when sin becomes addictive. And how many times have we heard this expression and perhaps we've said it ourselves? Not too long ago I had a young man tell me this who is caught at this level of habitual sin. Sick Crawford. I know it's wrong, but I just can't stop. Here, listen, 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 listen. Hear me. We have certain desires that make us really prone to certain temptations, which also makes us prone in that area to potential addictive behavior. That's the reason why you've got to protect your areas of weakness. You have to protect them. And that's what James is talking about here. And then the third, the final point in this downward death spiral, the act of sin, the habit of sin, the number three, the consequence of sin, which is death. In the Bible, when you hear of death, not unless it's defined in its context, it doesn't just mean cessation from life as in physical death. But spiritual death always means separation from God, separation from the life of God. That's what, that's what death means in the Bible, separation from the life of God. We often quote Romans 6.23 evangelistically, for, and we apply it to nonbelievers. I happen to question that a little bit because it's given into a, in a chapter that's talking about our identity in Christ. Romans 3.23 is more the evangelistic verse, but Romans 6.23 reminds us, for the wages of sin is death. And even as followers of Christ, habitual sin can separate us from the life of God. Habitual sin may be an indication that a person is not a follower of Christ. But I've also met a number of believers who have lived in patterns of sin, and they are miserable and fruitless, and outwardly you can't tell the difference between them and unbelievers. You see, there's a point at which our desire for sin will eclipse our spiritual passion. That's the point. And that's when that habit pattern, you, your desire for sin, eclipses your heart for God. Now, having said that, how do you overcome temptation? I think, generally speaking, I'm going to give you five quick suggestions, but generally speaking, the way to overcoming temptation is keeping a lid on our desires. 1 Corinthians 9, 27, the Apostle Paul says that I keep my body and I make it my slave, lest that after I've preached to others, I should be made a castaway. You know, I think self-control has gotten a bad name. You know, we, today we sanitize rude and inappropriate behavior by saying, oh, I'm just keeping it real. <laughs> or that's just who I am. 
as if that's an okay, that makes it okay for me to just flaunt my imperfections and not get any better, but hey, in the name of being authentic and real and transparent, that's who I am, I'm keeping it real, brother, and this is the way it is. No, that's not the way it is. And certainly, we don't want to give ourselves a pass when it comes to our behavior. We ought to be getting better. Here are five suggestions. And these are things that I, I do to this very day, areas of my own weakness. Number one, identify and don't deny your weaknesses. Denying that you have a weakness is not a deliverance from the weakness. And there's some brands of, of sanctification that deny the possibility of doing certain things, and I find that very dangerous. Don't deny it. I think that identify and don't deny your weaknesses. I am weak in this area. Number two, identify where and when you're most vulnerable. Where and when you're most vulnerable. And then if you have to change your environment and routine, when, when am I most vulnerable for this thing to happen? Number three, share your weaknesses and vulnerabilities with a godly trusted friend. With an emphasis on those last few words, a godly trusted friend. Don't share it with somebody that you know has a tendency of talking about people. That's a good sign that they talked about others. When they're not around, they're going to talk about you when you ain't around. But find a godly, trusted friend. The principle here is this. I have found that victory is found in humility. When I humble myself and share with someone an area of weakness and struggle, often that, that, that frees me up. Number four, have trusted friends to pray with you. This is battle and warfare. And then finally, memorize the Word of God. Memorize it. Memorize it. If Jesus modeled to us, it is written, it is written, it is written, it is written. There's power in the Word of God. There's power in it. And the Spirit of God shows up. And, and if I were you, what I would do, what I would do, whatever your area of weakness is, memorize passages of Scripture relative to that area of weakness. And then when you are tempted, the temptation is strong. That word, that relevant word from God will fight for you. Memorize the Scripture. I'm going to have the team come up right now, and we're going to celebrate communion. And I think what an appropriate time to celebrate communion. I've saved this verse, these two verses for last. Ultimately, the way we experience, the way we experience victory over our temptations is by looking to Jesus, looking to him. He's the one that has secured victory for us, and he is our victory. I love what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, 2, verses 17 and 18. Speaking of Jesus as a high priest, listen to these sweet words. Love them. Therefore, he, meaning Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or satisfaction for the sins of the people. And now listen to these words in verse 18. Hmm. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help 
those who are being tempted. And if you're tempted, and we all are, Jesus, the Lord of history, wants to help us. Will you let him help you? Will you let him help you? 